0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. We were going to do something today other than what is going to happen because a guest fell through. And so we just started chatting about stuff and we're trying to figure out, you know, what we should do as an episode and for some reason or another we're looking at pictures of old receivers and integrated amps from the 70s and just I you know I do this with people I get on the I get on Skype or I get on the phone with them and we start looking at the same web pages. <laughs> and say, "Oh, look at that. Would you like, you know, usually it's guitars. Or, you know, gear like this. So I've always wanted to kind of record
1: that. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to try. Let's hope it's not too boring. This is definitely a two guys in a pub episode. (laughs) Definitely. We've talked about doing that. So I found out about this. I get stats on my website and I see for some referrers, I see where people are coming. So there's been a link to my site from someone else's site, and I see it. Not always the way HTTPS works with search. Anyway, yesterday, I had a referrer coming from an article called How a Digital Guy Fell in Love with a Vintage Stereo Receiver. This is written by Jeroen Paco Haydendahl. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. In 2015, he has a link in the article to something on my site talking about different lossless files and he starts with this picture of a Sansui ninety ninety receiver. Now, it's going to be a link in the show notes. You really have to follow along with the links in the show notes this week so you can see what we're talking about. You know, if you listen to the show regularly, I appreciate minimalism. My Sonos amp has no real buttons. It's just got, what do you call those things where you touch and something happens? Magic. <laughs> yeah, OK, so it's got three magic buttons. This Sansui has like 30 buttons and knobs and levers on it. And there's something just so satisfying about it. We were just looking at it, and it's got three speaker zones. It's got two tape decks connections. It's got two headphone jacks.
0: Three tone controls, which, w- yep. including a mid-range.
1: Yeah, including a mid-range. Loudness um, modes. Yeah, it's got all these things. It's got VU meters. It's got power meters. Oh, it's just... It's everything. um, And there it is. There's something about these that I I never had anything anywhere like this. Although, interestingly, I once worked at a Sansui warehouse in Queens, New York. Three or four months just moving things around. I never even considered saying, hey, can I get a discount and get one of these for myself? What? Yeah, I know. Well, I had my Radio Shack stereo, so that was enough at the time. Well, you're all set. But you look back at this and it's like... There, there's something to be said for this maximalism it's um back in the 50s I have these visions
0: of you know hi-fi buffs having you know all these homemade components and all of these particular changes that they would make between the phonograph and and the speakers and finally by the time we get to the mid to the late 60s and early 70s all of this stuff has been minimalized enough so that they can put it all in one little box and Since they can minimize so much stuff, they give you the control over all of those things. So I mean, this particular receiver has high and low filters. It's got different types of Dolby. Anything you'd want to do with sound, this would be um, the center of your system. Uh, Kirk mentioned it's got tape play, which means you can plug two decks into it, two recording decks of any sort, and set. The control to send the audio from one deck to another, while one records and one plays back, and that sort of thing. And
1: what that means is that you can take a Grateful Dead tape and make a copy of it. Exactly. This is the sort of thing that a,
0: a, a deadhead would have in the house to to yep. to do this home recording. It's, it's it's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful device, and it's not the only one. That's what's the amazing thing is that these this was not. Atypical of, of, of the gear that was available for a good decade and a half.
1: Yeah. It didn't last long, did it? Because once we got into the eighties, then it kind of looked it kind of a old fashioned. Well, you know what
0: it reminds me of um corporate rockers. It reminds me of like when I look at this, all I can think of is like bands like Journey. <laughs> because they have the same overwrought, overbearing, uh just, just it's just too much. It's almost a Homer mobile, if you know what I'm talking about. It's like when I'm you ask somebody to design something, and they put everything they 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 idiosyncratically want in it, you get something that only Homer will like. You won't get anything that anybody else will like. Yeah. And I think this kind of this th- th- nobody wanted all this after a while. It became too complicated. It's like all they wanted to do, as we know now, is they just want to push a button and hear their favorite songs. This does not help with that.
1: Okay, I'm going to send you a link to a a receiver that was designed by Dieter Rams for Braun in Germany. Dieter Rams is Johnny Ive's influence, and so he takes this with all the knobs and buttons, and he makes it into something that's really quite attractive. It doesn't have that gaudiness to it. there's something. It's an it's an art object when yeah. when you look at what he did here. And again, links in the show notes because this is important. You, if you don't know any of this stuff, you have to see what this stuff looks like. Now, I'm looking at this, and I remember when this was a popular-looking
0: thing. And it, I look at it now, and it looks like an old CB radio. Yeah, you know what I mean. It doesn't look. It looks ah, very interesting. Um, yeah. Yep. I, I, it just it looks very. Um, uh, it looks like a, a piece of radio equipment or something. It. It doesn't look like it should be in a consumer's home. It looks like it right. should be. Yeah. As a, it looks like a Geiger counter or something.
1: <laughs> or something on the bridge of an aircraft carrier. Exa- yes,
0: that's it. It looks like a piece of aircraft uh, uh, components. Whereas the yeah.
1: Sansui 9090 looks like it's a sculpture for the modern home in the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. Okay, yeah. so we're going to go further. In the article, the guy links to a Flickr stream by someone named Rayner. It's just gear porn, pure gear porn. There's Marantz, there's Yamaha, there's- Techniques, uh, the beautiful ah, techniques. Techniques, look. beautiful techniques, yeah. And interestingly, so the techniques, there were a lot of black techniques back then. Silver was the dominant color, but techniques set themselves apart by having black. Luxman also did that, didn't they?
0: We had a gold techniques integrated amp in a studio i worked in in college i think it was yes it was definitely techniques it was gold front um it didn't have the rack handles like these nice these really nice i guess you call them space gray now uh techniques uh amps have uh, but you know <laughs> even you know even if you went to like sears To buy one of these things, they would have the rack handles to make it look, (laughs) like, really cool. But there's no rack-mounting hardware on the machine, so (laughs) it's just the handles.
1: Look at the JVC four-channel amplifier. Ah, yes. Oh. Yes. So remember the brief period where quadraphonic was a thing? Yeah. How did that work on records? Was it one, the groove was a high part and a low part? I don't. I, I, don't <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that worked. I once attended a quadraphonic concert. It was Pink Floyd's The Wall. And it was at Nassau Coliseum. was it 1980. And I remember going in and seeing you had the speakers on the stage, but you had a whole bank of speakers on the opposite end. You had two banks of speakers. Uh, and there were these bits where the sound was circling around the arena. Of course, there were these bits where planes were crashing and things were flying around. So it was quite spectacular. But it was a quadraphonic show but of course they would have done that through a mixing board it's not like this where you've got one amplifier there and you're outputting it to four speakers
0: well you'd use a um a reel to reel deck that had four Ah, tracks. that must have
1: been it yes and reel to so reel that, because
0: that's how i heard it that's how i heard quadraphonic and it would it was interesting um i still even then, I still thought that stereo was more lifelike. It, yeah. It sounded more affected when you had the quadraphonic. And it's not like five one. It's not like, no. you know, it's not that
1: way at all. It's Quadraphonic is something very different. If you go down to the very bottom of the page, the Techniques SA5470A, this is interesting because it's the black of the Techniques but with silver dials. So it doesn't look like a CB radio. It looks like... This is a new design statement. I don't know what year, um, 1977. If you click on the photos, the guy has a whole bunch of historic information about each of these devices. There was a search here to to separate them. Because what were people buying back then? They weren't buying the sound quality, were they? They were buying specs, and they were buying the look. They were buying a, a gizmo that could make them look modern and impress people. Just in early radio, you see the pictures of people listening to these radios in these bits of furniture. The radio was the center of the home, and here was that brief period in the '70s where music was the center of the home for some people. It might have been in a den, a listening room. It might have been in a room with a TV, but it was important to show off this musical equipment. The um
0: the ga- you know, you, you just reminded me of. Uh, I've been watching a lot of old James Bond movies because there's a stream of them. And it reminds me of the Playboy, James Bond, that, that what sort of man who reads Playboy has this gear? And gear was, I mean, that's quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I'll admit to it, I used to read Playboy for the gear. Um, <laughs> and they always had the high-end hi-fi, and it was something that you would have. It was, uh, it was a status. Yeah. Um, the, the more geary your gear looked, then the more cool you were, you know, and like I said, it looks like a James Bond sort of, um, you know, love pit or 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 Doctor No's evil evil lair or something. It's just the components. The more components you had, the more the, the more stylish you were, the cooler you were, and this helped to do that
1: because my goodness, look at all the controls on these things. So go to the second page of the Flickr gallery. And find oh, the one. A page? There's four or five pages. Yeah. Oh, oh you're right. Find the one that has the Rainbow Rising album cover behind it, and click on that. This is a Pioneer SX1080 Heavy Metal Edition receiver. Oh my! <laughs> so VU meters, signal strength, tuning. Uh yes, the little tuning meter to make sure that you're tuned into your FM radio station is as good as possible. Multiple rows, so you've got your meters on top, and then your tuning dial. And then your buttons, and then the knobs and levers on the bottom. I mean, this is just beautiful stuff.
0: This is a very nicely designed uh, receiver. I, I do like the way they, as you describe it, the, the rows of controls.
1: Yeah. So they're very distinct. This dates to 1979. According to the information here, the Pioneer SX 1980, 1280, and 1080 are the three largest receivers of the end of the 70s golden hi fi years. There were uncompromising top sellers in the international market receiver that you could buy in the hi-fi studios. This is translated from German. So 140 watts per channel on an oversized power supply and a lot of power transistors. 22 kilos it weighed. That's about 40, 50 pounds. Wow. Almost.
0: Yeah. It is uh, large. You know, and, and yeah. I look at these and while, I, while they're in beautiful, pristine shape, I can't help but also see them curbside as people disposed of them in the '80s. It just, <laughs> you know, you can see how crappy they they were treated. Uh, you know, the 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 wood parts kicked in, or the. But I'm used yep. to see these thrown out all the time. That's funny. There's a guy in okay, my town. So- actually, I should mention there's a guy in my town who who sells these. In fact, every time I drive by, he's got stacks of these, um, these amps and receivers in the window. And I've I, I've been here for 14 years, and I have yet to go into the shop. And ch- well, you know you're going to do it this I afternoon because might. you've got it. Right. You've got a new old pair of speakers, don't you? I found these old JBLs in my closet that I bought seven years ago that I never there were. I was going to use them as near field monitors. And um, I, I for laughs I just plugged them in, and they sound better than my Bose, so I'm going to leave them. And now now you've got me thinking. I have an old. Um, I think it's a Techniques (laughs) or Marantz. I can't remember it because that's also tucked away. But it is also a vintage um, amp that I bought several years ago that I was using for a while. I had that dual-deck thing that I really liked. And I was able to go from computer to computer. (laughs) I had to actually do stuff analog. It was actually faster to do it that way than it would be to transfer the audio from one machine to another back then. But anyway. Uh, I should probably just dig that thing out get a hundred bucks and give it to the guy and have him clean it up and then hook it up to these JBLs because the dream sound that I've been looking for <laughs> is this analog crown amp powered uh, JBL sound that I heard in college and I have I'm getting closer to it with these little JBLs. so now I'm now you've got me fantasizing that gee if I only spent some more money <laughs> I would have the best sound ever And, of course, that's...
1: Well, the guy in this article says that his Sansui, you can get one for about $1,000... And he paid $200 for a recap, and particularly to replace the capacitors because they go bad over time. And also clean out and service the whole gizmo, which, you know, wherever it would have been sitting in a closet, there might be other things that need to be fixed, power supplies and cables and and stuff. It's
0: usually the the pots, the the volume controls all those things. They get crappy.
1: Yeah. So scroll to page three and go down a little bit, and you'll see a picture of a Marantz where you've got one device on top of another. It looks like the one on top is the same as the bottom. The bottom just has a wooden case around. It. That's sort of there. There is a symmetrical ecstasy when you look at that. You've got six buttons on the bottom and then three rows of four smaller buttons. And the design in there, you've got the Matching two dubbing jacks on the left And the stereophones and power button on the right The symmetry of that is entirely perfect
0: Yes, it's a beautiful looking
1: And, and Marantz has
0: this look Which I don't particularly care for e-
1: Even today, Marantz does yeah. the, this kind of overwrought yeah. stuff And uh, I've never really
0: cared for the Marantz The way it looks. And you know what I really don't like? You know what bugs me? The the lettering <laughs> The Marantz yeah, logo, the logo is okay, but yeah. that scripty-looking stuff—I've never liked that on receivers,
1: ever. Yeah, there is a certain a continuity of design language on these brands, and and you can see it. Now you got to scroll down near the bottom of page three and look at this Sansui CA three thousand preamplifier. That is something. That is it? something. Now I don't know what all those things are doing. <laughs> As a preamplifier, I, I thought a preamplifier is just basically has an on off switch and you don't do anything with it ap- afterwards. I, I mean, I've never had a preamplifier. This is from 1976. It's got sensitivity, pickup load, sources, volume muting, tape selector, filters. What are these high and low filters? These high-pass and low-pass filters. Yeah, they're pulling out the high
0: end or they're killing the low end. So rather
1: than adjust the tone, they're filtering the tone. So it's it's the opposite of an adjustment.
0: Right, yeah. It's it's a set cutoff. I think it tells you, right? Doesn't it say where it cuts it off? Instead of increasing. Sometimes it
1: does, sometimes it doesn't. Which is what the other ones do. Wow, it's got two high and low. Now, I remember when I was young, my father had a Grundig... Well, radio, but it was shortwave as well as AM-FM. Your father probably had the same, because I know we both had a woolensack tape recorder when we were young. <laughs> no,
0: we didn't have a Grundig radio, although I did run into a guy with a Grundig radio when I was in high school, um, and he, it, it was a beautiful device. Grundig, great radios. Back in the day they were, when they were German and the stuff was being made in Germany,
1: it was superior. You can see the continuity of the design from that sort of radio to these amplifiers that it's it's got that that tuning bar and it's got buttons, even though there aren't a lot of buttons it had the preset buttons for different stations and What was great about short wave is you'd see the short wave tuning bar and it would be like over here would be Norway and over there would be Peru and you would just. <laughs> you would just know how to find a um a country channel going through one of those things it was never a shortwave band
0: on um stuff released in america i mean we just is that different in europe do you
1: suppose is, i mean would you buy a receiver that all the countries here had shortwave well no you'd buy oh, yeah. a separate shortwave right. radio i had one uh, at at a point i think it was when i came back to norway back to france from norway in 1989 I had been listening to shortwave radio from different countries and I found it really interesting. And I bought a little Sony, it's like the size of a paperback book. It wasn't very expensive. It was just a normal antenna. You didn't need a, a special antenna. But if you were getting shortwave in the States from around the world, you probably needed more. I was mostly getting European countries. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we yeah we could only get shortwave if we listened to the shortwave radio. We couldn't pick it up on anything else.
1: But you could get 50,000-watt AM stations at night from half a country away. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, Yeah. As you look through the four pages of photos here, it's clearly Sansui that had the most Baroque design. And there are a lot of different variants of their design. There's a couple near the very end of the fourth page where there's no there's, – th- these are just amplifiers, so they don't have the tuning bar. And these are almost things that you could see now. Yeah, the controls would be a little bit different, but it's not that far away from the design that we have now. Yeah, I'm not even sure what the design we have now is. What is it? It's just it's 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 as minimal as possible, right? Well, I'm looking on uh, Richer Sounds. They are a retailer, online and store retailer, and they sell all sorts of TVs, stereos, etc. And I'm gonna pick one at random. I'm going to send you the link here because this is live radio that we're doing. So this is an Ankyo network stereo receiver and it's got a few dials and it's got a sort of LCD display. What's interesting is that most of this is digital. So you're not going to get the tuning bar anymore. You're going to get the frequencies as when you see your car, uh, as in your car stereo. If you look at the number of knobs they have, they have far fewer knobs. And I find that interesting in a way that... They don't have the knobs anymore because... Well, what do they
0: have, like a menu or something that you would try to... Is that what they use? Well, some of them do it like that. Or those controls
1: just not available. Some of them do it like that. But if you look, for example, the Yamaha AS801 integrated amplifier, it's got bass, treble, balance, loudness, input, and volume. And there's really not much else that you can do. However, Yamaha does have an app because I had a couple of Yamaha receivers. They do have an app where you can adjust a couple of other things. It, all, all this makes me think that, for instance, those low-pass and high-pass filters, maybe they're just not needed anymore. Maybe the improvements in technology are such that whatever tone control is less brutal than it might have been back then. Well, I, I would submit that those are
0: there um, for tape users because then you could eliminate the low-end rumble or any high-end hiss or that sort of thing. So uh, that's my thinking, that those were therefore for tape users because as Andy Doe has told us many times um, the way the music comes to your house is the way the producer wanted it to sound yes so there's really no way that you should there's no reason for you to be messing around with the sound unless it's to shape it for a room or something like that but who needs to do that so I think that those are there to to compensate for you know tape issues because tape sucks <laughs> I mean when you get right down to it tape is just awful
1: Well, I think that if you really wanted that sort of control, you would have added a graphic equalizer to your system, wouldn't you?
0: Sure. But you might be trading tapes. You might be getting a tape that someone else recorded on a different kind of machine.
1: I had a dual. And when you go
0: back and forth, when you go, you know, when you lose, when you go back and forth between decks, you do lose some analog uh, uh, sound. So I mean,
1: which is why when you would make a list of tapes to trade, you would specify what generation your tapes were. Exactly. And yes. you would never turn on Dolby noise reduction because that was always detrimental to the to the reproduction of it. I had a dual deck Luxman tape deck that I got in the 90s. Once I got internet access, I started getting in touch with tapers and trading. And I said, got to get my own tape deck. And I got a used one. And it was only for a few years because shortly after that, people started trading CDs and then digital files. But there was it was an interesting period of doing that. Anyway – Uh, Enough nostalgia. I I really would be tempted to get one of those, you know, old Sansui gizmos there. Just to fire it up and have a look at the blue glow.
0: (laughs) We've been talking about the gear. Let's talk about the stuff we're going to play through the gear. We got our next tracks, Kirk.
1: My next track is contemporaneous with this gear. It's a recording from February 5th, 1978 of Robert Fripp at the Kitchen playing Frippertronics. It's about two and a half hours long. It's really amazing. This is from a quarter-inch reel-to-reel and bootleg cassette that were recorded at the time. There are, let's see, nine tracks, two and a half hours. They go from about seven minutes to 31 minutes. This is, as Sid Smith says in his liner notes, the show is important for another reason. The lack of any beeping-type sounds that would be a hallmark of future performances, These sounds are created by a signal bypass switch added to the pedal board. It's likely that at the time of this show, Fripp had not discovered this technique. If you know the recordings that Fripp released back in the day, Let the Power Fall, I think, was the first Frippatronics album. It's closer to this sound than to what would become later. This this, is—Frippertronics is basically—he's playing loops, so he'd play something. It would get recorded on a loop. The loop would continue. He'd play something. It would get added. There are actually musicians who perform all the time like this. Keller Williams, does Katie Tunstall do that as well? It's not an uncommon technique, and so Keller Williams has like a dozen instruments. He'll do the bass, and then he'll do the keyboard, and then the guitar, and then some percussion, whereas Fripp is just doing guitar. Now, this is music for those who have specific tastes— Not everyone will like it, and it sounds best through a vintage 1970s amplifier. Doug, what have you got? You know how we have records
0: now that we use to test our our audio systems? You know, if you move the speakers around, or you change the speakers, or you change a component, you always go back to a few, three or four records that you like to listen to, just to make sure that everything sounds the way you think it's supposed to sound. And so I went back in my memory to think about what I would have wanted to listen to had I had one of these magnificent... Uh, amplifiers or receivers back in the day and without a doubt I would have reached for a hot tuna album a, a hot tuna electric album and the one I'm going to choose is Hopcorve, which came out in 1976 there are five or six uh, strictly electric hot tuna albums of course there are the acoustic ones and then there are the kind of there are some hot tuna albums that kind of fall in between the two but there are four or five distinctly uh, hot tuna albums uh, that are considered the electric ones. And hop corv is typical of them. Um, I liked the sound of them because everything was really compressed and heavy. And, um, it was, uh, almost almost like that light heavy sound that Led Zeppelin was always going for. I mean, Yorma did not scream vocals. He just kind of garbled his way through a lot of these songs, but the music is really hot and heavy. And that's what I, I liked a lot. Um, I was first turned on to Hot Tuna, Electric Hot Tuna, uh, by my roommate in college. And it, Hot Tuna definitely provided a lot of the uh, soundtrack to the crazy college hijinks that went on in the dorm. This one is, I think, typical of the five or six electric albums. I can't really tell them apart. If you were to ask me what song came from what album, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> because they do sound very similar. They all have that heavy, uh, compressed sound. But Corp is really good. One of my favorite songs on it is It's So Easy, the Buddy Holly song. They do a nice version of that. And they also do uh, a nice version of Talking About You, which is a Chuck Berry song. And then the usual heavy stomping, psychedelic, crazy music, blues-based stuff is uh, is always provided as requisite. So I haven't listened to any of this kind of hot tuna in a long time. I've been listening to a lot of the, their current live sets, but uh, I haven't really gone back to their 70s music again. So this this will be a treat for a little while. Hot Tuna from 1976, Hopcore. This was episode number 171 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. And for this episode, it's really important. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, tell your friends about the next track on social media. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.